Well, hey there, my name is Laurel Guy and I'm on staff here at FCC and I love our church. My husband, Sam and I moved to Johnson City a little over a year ago, just after we married and it was an uncharted move for me. We didn't have jobs here. We didn't know people here. I'd never lived this far away from my family. And as much as I like Johnson City, I wasn't convinced it would ever feel like home. But the day after we moved, we visited FCC and you all made the difference. We found our home in Johnson City here among you. So, let me just begin this morning by saying thank you. Last week, Ethan kicked off a new series called Uncharted, where we are studying this theme that we see throughout the Bible, that the decision to trust God comes before the way is made clear and the path is made known. We saw that last week with Abraham, to whom God said, go to the place I will show you. The answer to where or how is pretty much start walking and I'll tell you when you get there. God doesn't give us a map, but God promises to be our guide. And God asks us to trust one uncharted step at a time. We're living in uncharted times right now. And as we've all walked through this pandemic together, something I've realized about uncharted times is that the whole not having a plan and a clear map thing tends to really stress people out. It stresses me out. And when I'm stressed out, I am not necessarily the best, most Christ-like version of Laurel. I've come to realize Uncharted paths often require uncharted grace. We're all learning how to do things differently. School is weird for all ages. Milligan, ETSU, Northeast, and Emanuel students all have a shortened semester with the same workload. We feel distant and alone. We all have to be mindful of being safe so that we can love our neighbors well. Plus, we just had an election. We've all been under this extra pressure for what feels like a really long time, and prolonged stress leads to a lack of patience, low gratitude, high emotions, shortened tempers, and just plain exhaustion, so that we all end up not being our best, most Christ-like versions of ourselves, and we find ourselves in need of a little extra grace. I think grace is one of those words that Christians use a lot, but we're not always great at defining it. Grace is different from justice, from mercy, from forgiveness. It goes beyond all three. It's also what makes Christianity unique. C.S. Lewis was once asked what made Christianity different from other world religions. Lewis said, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. And it's true. Grace sets Christianity apart because grace doesn't make any logical sense. You can't do good things and not do bad things to receive grace. That would make it justice, getting what you deserve. 
Grace is the totally unearned, undeserved, unmerited outpouring of God's love and blessing. My dad modeled grace well for me from a young age. I've always been a good student and a perfectionist. However, especially in middle and high school, I was pretty much living by the motto, better late than ugly. And I spent so much time curling my hair in the morning that I would be in a huge rush to pack up my backpack and get out the door that I was prone to forget something, usually my homework. We lived 30 minutes away from my school, an hour round trip, so my dad drove me every morning. But sometimes I would get there and my stomach would just drop as I realized I'd forgotten my homework and I would totally panic. So I'd text my dad. And every time he came, he took another hour out of his workday, but he never acted like I'd interrupted him. And not only did he show me mercy by bringing me the homework I'd forgotten, he then showed me grace by offering to take me out to lunch. And I can never wear him out on it. He did it every time. I would make a mistake. And my dad's response to my mistake was basically, I got this. And also, let's go to lunch and celebrate how much I love you. Throughout scripture, we see the grace of God's people as an agent of total transformation in the world. It's at the heart of who Jesus is, of his ministry, and of who the church is called to be today. My favorite story of the transforming power of uncharted grace is found in Acts 8 through 9 concerning a man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus was brilliant, and he knew it. He had everything a Jewish man in first century Palestine would ever need to have power and influence. He received a prime Jewish education, and as a Roman citizen in Tarsus, likely a Greek education as well. He was a disciple of Gamaliel, the rabbi of the Pharisees at the time. He had a charismatic personality and a lot of passion. The first time we meet Saul is at the murder of a man named Stephen, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church. The Jewish leaders dragged Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And when they did so, Saul gladly stood by and watched Stephen die, while Stephen prayed that God would forgive those who were stoning him. After Stephen's stoning, Saul became enraged. He was so sure he was right about who God was and what he would and would not do. But Stephen had the audacity to preach that Jesus was the Son of God, to accuse the Jewish people in Jerusalem of murdering the Messiah, and then to pray for their forgiveness as they stoned him. All of it filled Saul with a violent, self-righteous anger. And so Saul sought to annihilate the Christians. Scripture says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. 
The text goes on to describe Saul as breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. The language used to describe Saul here is that of a panting and snorting wild beast. Make no mistake. To the early Christians, Saul was a terrorist. When some Christians escaped his wrath and took refuge in Damascus, Saul used his power and influence to obtain letters from the high priest that would give him the authority to pursue those Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. But that's not what happened, because Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. The text says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he answered. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And this is where we see the chain reaction of grace begin in this story. Jesus appears to Saul, but he doesn't force Saul to do anything. Jesus doesn't come to him with the violence with which Saul had been persecuting him. Instead, he appears to Saul and offers him an opportunity. So Saul, blinded by the holy light he had encountered, does as Jesus asks, and was led by the hand into Damascus. Meanwhile, Jesus also appears in a vision to a Christian man in Damascus named Ananias and tells him to go to Saul and lay hands on him and restore his sight. Not only that, Jesus tells him that Saul is his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Time out. Ananias knew exactly who Saul was. Yet Jesus shows up and tells Ananias that that's the guy he's chosen to spread his gospel to the Gentiles and the world. Talk about uncharted grace. That is crazy. And Ananias felt that way too, since his first reaction was pretty much, are you sure about that, Jesus? Because I'm not so sure about that. But Jesus was sure. Jesus was sure that Saul needed grace. And that Saul needed grace not just from God, but from the people of God. And that's the thing about uncharted grace. This kind of grace is essential to our faith and makes Christianity different because we worship a God who will absolutely choose that guy, the terrorist, for a huge mission and purpose. No matter how messed up we are, God sees our potential, always. And God's grace becomes fully operational when God's people show grace. When Ananias finds Saul, he gently places his hands on him and tenderly greets him as brother Saul. Then he says, 
the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He heals Saul and baptizes him. Very soon after, Saul showed up in the synagogues in Damascus, where he was originally planning to arrest Christians. But instead of dragging them off, he began to preach the gospel and preach it really well. Scripture says, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. But even that isn't the most amazing part about this story. Because eventually, Saul went back to Jerusalem. Back to where he had hunted, imprisoned, and killed anyone he could find that was a follower of Jesus. Back to where he had publicly watched and celebrated the murder of a man for doing exactly what he had been doing in Damascus, preaching the gospel. Back to the place where he was the man Christ followers feared, where he was the man you didn't want to find your house church, where he was the man who would show up and rip your family apart and drag off your wife, your husband, your brother or sister, your children, you, and kill you, all of you. Pause with me. Now, I want to be very gentle with you because I know this is really hard for me. So I'm giving you the remote here and you go as far as it is healthy for you to go and you choose where to press pause, okay? But I want you to take a moment and think. Is there someone you just can't forgive? Who just doesn't deserve your grace? And you're probably right, they don't. But is there someone who has hurt you or your family? Someone who maybe betrayed you, abandoned you, who said the thing that has continued to haunt you? Someone who made you feel like you weren't worth very much. Who took something from you. Who distorted your thinking. Who broke your heart. Do you remember them? Me too. For a woman named Mary Johnson, that person was a teenager named O'Shea Israel. One night, Mary got a call asking if her 20-year-old son, Lara Mayoon, had come home. He hadn't. Mary hung up and called her sister, who called the police, who happened to be on their way to tell Mary that her son had been shot and killed. Her son's killer was identified as 16-year-old O'Shea Israel. In her own words, Mary said, I believe the hate set in then and there. 
Here was I, a Christian woman full of hate. In court, I viewed O'Shea as an animal, and the only thing that kept me going was being able to give my victim impact statement. For Mary Johnson, O'Shea Israel was undoubtedly that person. For Christians in Jerusalem, Saul had been that person. The text says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Well, that makes sense. This is uncharted territory. Not in the sense that no map exists, but in the sense that they had a map and they had to decide whether or not to use it. I guarantee they had a map for what to do with the guy who killed a member of their family. But what do you do when that guy shows up and says he's not who he used to be? Imagine that person who hurt you showed up, repentant for what they did, supposedly transformed by the radical grace of Christ. And first, they want to eat with you in your home. And then they want to join your small group or your book club or your fantasy football league. And then someone suggests that they should lead your group. What would you do? That's the kind of situation we're looking at in this story. The person who had killed their friends and family who had gone to Damascus with murderous intent, wants to be welcomed, accepted, and even wanted to teach. But a man named Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a man who understood that the decision to trust God comes before the way is made clear and the path is made known. At great personal risk, as in other people probably thought this was suicide, went out to meet Saul and welcomed him as his brother. Scripture says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas believed grace was worth the risk, so much so that he vouched for Saul. And then, led by Barnabas, Saul was welcomed into the church in Jerusalem. He began serving and preaching and leading among them, and they regarded Saul, the one who had previously sought to destroy them, as one of them. What grace. By showing Saul this radical, uncharted grace, the church in Jerusalem proved that they actually believed the gospel. Because we prove that we believe that God forgives when we forgive. The church in Jerusalem proved that they believed that Jesus actually died for Saul just as much as he had died for them. They believed that Saul's sins were actually nailed to the cross just like theirs. 
Where do the Christians in Jerusalem come to collect a debt from Saul in this story? Where do they ask him to make up for how he wronged them? Where do they act like Saul owed them? They don't. Sometimes I feel like we really struggle to believe that today. We're so divided right now. If someone tweets the wrong thing or votes for the wrong person, often that's enough for us to be done with them. Can you imagine if we scrolled through Saul's old tweets, the kind of things we would find? Just like the church in Jerusalem, it would seem that we had every reason to cast Saul out. But the reality is, when we fail to show grace, what that says is that we don't really believe the gospel. This story highlights two really important things about grace. One, the church in Jerusalem didn't know how it was going to work out. And two, think about what the church would have lost if they had not chosen to trust God and show uncharted grace to Saul. They would have missed the miracle. Saul, also known by his Greek name, Paul, went on to fulfill the mission God gave him. Paul went on to preach the gospel to the Jewish authorities, to the Gentiles, to establish churches in numerous cities, to share his testimony before some of the most important figures in the Roman world, and wrote a very large portion of the New Testament. Uncharted grace is core to the Christian faith because we serve a God who calls people like Paul to do some of God's greatest work. And in order for us to be the church that God has called us to be, we have got to figure out how to show this kind of uncharted grace. Which means those two things that were true about grace for them are also true for us. We don't know what's going to happen when we show audacious grace. But if we want to follow God, that's what we have to do. Because think of what we will lose if we don't. And that's what Mary Johnson figured out. After her son's killer, O'Shea Israel, was sentenced to prison, she went to visit him. She describes the visit this way. Never having been to a prison before, I was so scared that when we got there, I wanted to turn back. But when O'Shea came into the room, I shook hands with him and said, I don't know you, and you don't know me. You didn't know my son, and he didn't know you, so we need to lay down a foundation and get to know one another. We talked for two hours, during which he admitted what he'd done. I could see how sorry he was, and at the end of the meeting, for the first time, I was genuinely able to say I forgave O'Shea. He couldn't believe how I could do this, and he asked if he could hug me. When he left the room, I bent over, saying, I've just hugged the man who murdered my son. 
Then, as I got up, I felt something rising from the soles of my feet and leaving. From that day on, I haven't felt any hatred, animosity, or anger. It was over. But Mary did more than just forgive O'Shea. She developed a relationship with him. When O'Shea's sentence was up, Mary threw him a homecoming party. O'Shea moved into the house next door to Mary. He calls Mary his second mom, and Mary calls O'Shea her spiritual son. Together, they founded the ministry From Death to Life, and they travel around the country sharing their story and working to promote healing between the families of victims and those who have caused harm. That is uncharted grace. It's the kind of grace that the church showed the Apostle Paul, and it's the kind of grace that the church is called to show today. It's uncharted, it's risky, it's vulnerable for everyone involved. But here's a piece of wisdom our new welcome and involvement minister, John, shared with me. When we show grace to someone, we do so not based on who they are or who they have proven themselves to be, but on who God is and who God has shown God's self to be. You may already know what you need to do with all of this, and if you do, great, go do it. But if you don't, let me offer some ideas. First, if you're in danger or being wounded or abused, you get help and you get safe. That is paramount. And if you need help with that, we are here and ready to help you. So please reach out. You won't even be able to begin to figure out how to show grace until you are safe. Second, I want to challenge us to take a step. And it might be people, a posture, or a person. Your next step might have to do with people because some of us have been wounded and we are carrying those wounds today. The uncharted path of grace is to release those people, to forgive them and to free them of that debt, to recognize that if the church could forgive Saul, we can forgive them. They may have repented and they may not. I don't know what that might look like for you, but Maybe there are some people you just need to talk to God about today. Now, posture. This isn't just about people. This is about a whole way of operating in the world. Paul once wrote a letter to the Corinthian church where he said, love keeps no record of wrongs. And man, he knew what he was talking about. Imagine if the Jerusalem church had kept a record of wrongs. They would have had a whole list of people that Paul had killed. Maybe your next door neighbor voted for the wrong person. Or they mow their yard when you're trying to take a nap. Or their dog barks all the live long day. You could hold that against them for the rest of your life if you want to. Or you can say, I will not keep a record of wrongs. That is the posture the path of grace invites us to. And lastly, I want to talk about one person. It might be the person you have the hardest time believing that grace applies to. 
you. Maybe you've got your record of wrongs for yourself, but God says, I'm not keeping track. And this is the community of people where we are not keeping track. You are welcome here. You belong here. And not because you're so special or because we are so special, but because God says you're welcome and you belong. God's got grace for you. This church has grace for you. And there is an uncharted path for you without holding on to all that you've done. I don't know which one of these challenges you need to focus on this week. Showing grace to people, adopting a posture of grace, or accepting the grace of God and others. But what I do know is that when we miss opportunities to show grace, we miss opportunities to watch God work, to watch God make miracles out of our messes. And I don't know about you, but I never want to miss a miracle. Let's pray. God, we love you. We want you to hear that first and foremost. Thank you for your radical, amazing, uncharted grace that you continue, continually, constantly show us over and over again. Thank you for the fact that there is nothing we could do that could ever make you stop loving us or seeing our potential. I pray that this week you would enable all of us to take that grace that you consistently show us and allow it to become an outpouring of grace and love for others. Use us to show your grace and love to those around us this week and to draw others closer to you. Please let these things be done in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is alive right now. Amen.